All right, we're going to be in our second to last study through the warnings in the book of Hebrews. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and join me in Hebrews chapter 12. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the warning number seven, which many people wrap up with the study that we're looking at tonight. But I broke them out because I think they're significant on their own. But we talked about bitterness and how the root of bitterness can spring up. And the language there kind of shows you the illustration of a plant, kind of like a weed that you don't necessarily see where it starts, but you can see the effects of it. For those of you that are familiar with gardening and you know, trying to keep a yard clean from weeds, if you let just a little bit in the garden, it will overtake the entire thing. And you may be able to eliminate what's on the surface, but underneath the surface is where all of the weeds' strength is. It's the same thing with bitterness. It springs up like a root. And I want to remind you what the Scripture says. So look with me in verse uh, 15 of Hebrews chapter 12. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And we talked about what it means to fail of the grace of God. This does not mean that you fail the ability to receive God's grace in salvation, but you fail to continue on your growth. You allow this seed of bitterness to spring up and choke you, but it also affects many more people than just you. Take a look at the rest of that verse. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. So bitterness is not something that only affects one person. It starts with one person, but it can lead to an entire group of people. And there's a real danger in that, especially for undisciplined, immature Christians. When I say Christians, you know what I mean by that. Those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, they're a part of God's family, but they're the kids that sulk, and they always have an attitude, and Sometimes they obey, but it's reluctant. They don't do it with a good attitude. That obedience is not going to last. I have taken many parenting classes, and I've learned the importance of not only saying what needs to be done for your children, but then modeling it. Because if you don't model the behavior that you expect of your children, when they are outside of your home and outside of your authority, there is no reason for them to obey, because they're not under your rule anymore. And if they see you take liberties under someone else's household or in public, They'll do the same thing. And so God has set the standard for us. He has demonstrated the standard. When God says to love your neighbor, you can know that God was willing to do that very same thing. He loved the entire world and gave his son for the world. So it does not become hypocritical for God to say love your neighbor, even though your neighbor, and it might be your actual neighbor, but just our fellow man, uh, hates what you teach and hates what you live for you still are commanded to love them. And we can't look at God and say, but you didn't do that because that's exactly what he did. We were enemies at one point. But by the blood of Jesus Christ, we who are, were afar off were made close to God now. So if God can love every single person who eventually put him on the cross, then we can love him too. God is generous and therefore we can be generous. God loves unconditionally and so we can do the same. But 
What changes that is bitterness. It begins to change what God has said and it twists it into fitting what people already believe. They deceive themselves so, so well that they can't even discern what is God's word and what is their twisting. And this happens very easily. Sometimes it happens quickly. Uh, but many times it takes many years of probably sin that has not been confessed or gossip. Uh, this is one of the reasons why and I have learned this from the pastors who have gone before me and, and the education that I've received, how it can be very dangerous if you just let small groups pop up throughout the church. It's a dangerous thing. Well, first of all, because you can't verify what's being taught. I went to a small group for probably two and a half years. Um, I went with a friend of mine, and our goal was to lead people to Christ. But it is amazing. I knew this church's doctrinal statement, not this church here, but the church that was hosting this Bible study. And there were things that were said in these Bible studies by the leaders of the studies that just completely contradicted what the pastor would teach. And the pastor can't be there, so he's, not respon- he, he's responsible for what is said, but there's no way for him to check what is said. And in most of those types of environments, you get a lot of people saying, well, this scripture means this to me. Well, this is what I think it means. But we, we know the Bible is very clear. There's contextual interpretation Who's Paul talking to? Who's Peter talking to? Who is Jesus' audience in the Sermon on the Mount? And that's a single thing. You can't change who Jesus was talking to when he was addressing the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now the application, there can be many different applications of the Sermon on the Mount. And those have to make sure that they're in line with the contextual understanding. Well, a lot of Bible studies just forego that, and they don't have a contextual study, nor do they have an application study, they have personal interpretation. So everybody looks at the Bible through their own set of circumstances, and they take things that God has clearly said in context, they remove them out of context, and put them in their frame. And this is how you get churches that are ecumenical. Big word, but what that means is they do not have any commanding doctrine. They just kind of tell you things that are important, tell you things that you know. You go to a mega church and somebody like the pastor would give you the equivalent of telling grown people, don't do drugs. It's like, okay, pastor, we know that. And love each other. All right, we know that. What does the Bible say? Well, he won't teach from the Bible if he's ecumenical because he knows what he says from the scripture is going to convict those who are hearing and the, the one who is speaking. He will be convicted of those things. And in environments like that, that's where you get gossiping and backbiting. And that can turn into an entire cancer, so to speak, that will kill the body, which is the church. And this is how splits happen. Splits just don't happen overnight. It wasn't because someone said something outrageous. Oftentimes, it's something that was taught where someone had a prideful reaction to it. And then they get four people to agree with them. And those four people talk to three more people each. And it's a giant pyramid scheme for destruction in the church. That is the importance of looking diligently. And that's why this verse starts off the way that it does. It's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the vein of how we should respond to chastening. But the, the command is, accept your chastening from the Lord joyfully, knowing that it's to make you better, and protect, look diligently within yourselves and those people you associate with, lest there is any bitterness that can spring up. Like I said with the illustration with the weed plants, you, you, you have these things that you can get the surface level, but they're going to come back if you don't get the root of the problem. And that's what bitterness is. 
And it doesn't just defile the individual where bitterness is found. It also springs up and defiles many. And this is a sad reality. There are a lot of people who have split churches who realize their mistake far too late. 20, 30 years later, they regret what they've done, but the damage has already been done. So how do we avoid these things? We stay close to the Lord. We stay humble, and as we receive chastening from the Lord, we know He's not doing it for His own pleasure. He's not doing it as our fathers would discipline us. He's doing it out of an attitude of correction and pure love. He wants us to make our path straight, to turn in the correct way. But if you take that and you weaponize it to make yourself a victim, as if God is doing some injustice to you, the result will always be bitterness. And it will come in all different you know, forms, but the root will be bitterness. You could be wrathful, you could be a seething person, you could be somebody who comes... There, there are very likely people who come to church, they're faithful, they love God on the outside, but on the inside they hate Him. There's problems that they have not resolved with Him. They have given themselves this ability, this license, so to speak, to question God at every corner. I've, I've come across people, I've told you this before, where I have to, you know, on the phone most of the time, because I make myself available throughout the week uh, to have 15-minute appointments with people where we, I'm telling you folks, the number one thing we talk about is salvation. People don't, I don't want to say they don't care about their marriages, but people are not concerned with the problems in their marriages. People are not concerned with the problems financially that they have. People have been lied to and they have been deceived for many, many years in their lives. And they still, they have this innate seed of bitterness towards these individuals. And it manifests itself towards the individuals, but it's really towards God. And I've had to have many conversations on the phone where I've said, look, look, I've interrupted people kindly. I don't know if you can do that kindly. I say, hang on just a moment here. I just want you to recognize that there's a clear passage of Scripture here. And the only person in this call that is saying anything different than that passage is you. You want me to explain it in context, and I've done that for you. But they always say, but what about? It's like, well, not what about. What is this verse, this passage in line? What does this say? And I have them repeat it. And I tell them, I'm like, so the question is, do you believe what God has written here? People always going to want to go back to the church fathers. Why do we want to go back to the church fathers when we have the apostles? <laughs> this is the closest that you're going to get. And the Bible says it's inspired. These are actually the words of God. Oh, but the church fathers. The church fathers what? Why would I want to go to secondhand information when I've got the first original statements here? You know why you go to the church fathers? Because it gives you the ability to doubt. It gives you the ability to customize. Well, I'm a so-and-so Christian, and Calvinists do this a lot. I'm a five-point, or I'm a three-point. I've, I've heard someone say they're a half-point, which is comical. Um, I'm a nothing, zero point. I'm a biblicist. But they want to itemize, you know, compartmentalize all these different things. And it's an opportunity for bitterness to spring up. Because if you, oh, if a three point runs into a two point, woohoo, they're going to be scrapping. It's going to be a whole thing. Why? Because they're intellectuals. They think that they have a greater understanding than what the scripture has already plainly said. You know how Jesus said we should accept his teachings? As a little child. I heard this at the Grace Conference this year, and it was just remarkable to me. 
about that phrase that Jesus uses uh, as a little child. You have to understand these things. And, oh, man, I think it was Bill Rice who was speaking. I've read some of his books. It was just kind of crazy to be there and listen to him talk. But he was saying that, that that doesn't mean you trust blindly or that you trust because you're unable. It just means you simply receive with the expectation that what is being said is true. Children are not trusting blindly. They trust that their parents are able to do what they're said they're going to do. And as soon as kids get to the age where they can start to do things on their own, they learn very quickly there's my way and there's my parents' way. And a lot of the way that I choose brings about pain or, you know, injury, whatever it might be. So they learn to trust their parents because their parents have proven themselves to be faithful. Jesus proved himself to be faithful. One of the greatest miracles that Jesus did was raise Lazarus from the dead. That shook the entire community. Not only did he do that, but he also provided food for thousands of people out of single-handed supplies. So people knew of his power and ability, yet they did not believe his claims that he was the Messiah. That's not childlike faith. That is the equivalent of you telling your young kid to hold your hand across the street. They look at you and say, okay. And then they walk across the street to disobey you. They gave you everything to indicate that they were going to trust and do what you said, but they failed to act on it. There was nothing done. It's the same thing with what we have in the Word of God. Are we going to take him at his word, or are we going to be the kid that goes, but what about and this, and, you know, we're going to question at every turn. That's how bitterness comes up. And with that root of bitterness is how we get to resisting God. We're going to look at several passages here as we get to Hebrews. But I want to demonstrate to you there are several categories of people that have resisted God, believers and unbelievers. The entire purpose that the Israelites wandered for 40 years was because they resisted God's promise to bring them into the land. They saw the giants. They saw the conditions. They said, we are not, they didn't say this, but they might as well have said, God cannot put us into that land. Never mind that they were guided by a cloud in the day and fire by night. Never mind that the world's largest army was consumed by the Red Sea behind them, after they crossed on it. The Bible makes an, a distinction that they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw those things, but when they saw another peril or potential tragedy, they resisted God's promise. And every single one of them that doubted God died in the wilderness. Forty years, an entire generation. Why? Because God takes unbelief seriously. Whether it's in a sinner who has not put their trust in him or whether it is in his children, he has not changed. And we have to really think if we're going to be in a position where our actions would be telling God, I don't believe you. That's a dangerous spot to be. It's where a fool is. And you get there by having bitterness in your heart. But look in chapter 12 and verse 25. I'm going to speak here for just a moment. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Now, contextually here, this is probably referring to God. He spoke on Mount Sinai to Moses. Moses went down and communicated to the people. And now he has spoken through his son. 
Pastor, where does it say that? I'm glad that you asked. It's in this very book, Hebrews chapter 1. Would you turn there with me, holding your spot in Hebrews 12? Let's go to Hebrews 1. Some of my favorite verses. I remember when these were due in Bible doctrines class in college. I knew my Bible a little bit, not as much as I know it now, but boy, these verses, they just jump off the page. This is some good stuff right here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So, look up here for a moment. When God spoke back then, it was his word, and people took it as his word, until they were faced with circumstances they thought were going to overwhelm God's ability. And he demonstrated that will come with a price. And people, all through, after their deliverance from Egypt and being led into the promised land, the sacrifices, many of the feasts, the Passover, a lot of those things pointed back to what God did. It's a reminder. Why was it a reminder? Because men forget what God has done. It's a part of our nature. We are a what have you done late me, uh, what have you done for me lately kind of people. Why is that? Well, because we're fickle. In many ways, it's very difficult for us to just be content. And that's what is said later in Hebrews 13.5. But now God has spoken through his son. He did it at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Behold, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Also on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John went up to that mountain and they saw Jesus in his glorified body, and there is Moses and Elijah there too. And Peter said, which has been stuck in my mind ever since we were studying this around, the, uh, the, uh, around Resurrection Day, it is good for us to be here. That's just in my mind now a lot. and I, You hear me say it a lot. But he went, out, he went about building different tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The scripture says that a cloud descended around them, and when the cloud was lifted, only Jesus was there. And God said, this is my son, hear ye him. You listen to him. And the temptation for these Jews was to go back to the things that God had said to Moses for that time, and to basically tread under their feet the blood of Christ as if it were of no effect. So when he says here, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, we're getting some credentials about this Jesus. He's not just going to inherit a kingdom here on earth that's limited to Jerusalem. He's going to inherit all things. All of them. As far as the east is from the west, the entire thing is his. He's, it was spoken into existence by him. By whom also he made the worlds. He's the framer of what we look at in nature today. Who, being the brightness of his glory, you realize how serious that statement is? If you look at all of the temple rituals, if you came in and you were unclean and you caused your uncleanness to pass on to the items that were in the temple, you were put to death. Why? Because that's where God's glory resided. God is there. It has to be totally clean. That's why high priests had to make sure that they were completely clean in a ceremonial sense. And if they weren't, they were struck down dead in the Holy of Holies. 
Why? Because where God is, there cannot be sin. Why do we need new bodies? Because even if we were to have the perfect definition of, of, of a perfect body, this resides in sin. I cannot walk into heaven in this body. I need something brand new. That's the extent that God has gone to secure our salvation. The promise that one day, when we are with him, we will have a brand new body. That cannot sin. There's no sinful nature in it at all. So when it says here, who being the brightness of his glory, to say that Jesus is equivalent to the glory of God can only mean he is God. That's it. And the express image, this is, this is the one-for-one one stamp image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. Would a purging of this sin extend to bitterness? Yes. Would it extend to the potential for a believer to fail the grace of God by falling into sin? Yes. But it still doesn't give us the green light to move on in those things. But we know that what Jesus Christ did was significantly better than anything that was instituted before it. Everything that was instituted before it is less than what Jesus Christ did. When he had purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And Jesus has spoken. He has spoken that he will return again. Let Hebrews go. Hold your spot in Hebrews 12. But look in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has been spending time with his disciples. And they're asking him the question. And the question is in verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? They knew who he was at this point, but they also knew he's going to establish that kingdom. Is now the time? Boy, you would probably imagine the butterflies in their stomach. Is this it? And Jesus answers and says in verse 7, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. This is why I laugh when there are teachers and pastors and churches that say they know when the Lord is coming back. Not even the closest to him knew. And Jesus very clearly says, it's in red letters in case we doubt. You're not going to know the times. You know what that tells me? I better be busy doing what I know I should be doing instead of figuring out the things that God said I won't ever know. You ever... <laughs> That is exactly how, I, I remember when I was a young person, that is exactly how I treated things. Let me figure out trying to do everything that I don't need to know how to do instead of learning to do what I need to know right now. That's why I had to take algebra three times. Because I wouldn't figure it out the first time. And I don't, I don't know if I really passed algebra, by the way. I don't know if my high school diploma is legitimate. Oh boy, someone will dig that up later and use it against me. But look in verse 8. He says, you're not supposed to know the times. That's for me and God. But he, but ye, this is what, you, what will happen to you, shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What can we know? 
Don't worry about the kingdom. This is why I don't use that language. We're building for the kingdom. I don't use that language. I'm trying to win people. I want to be a witness for Christ. I want to win people so they can be witnesses for Christ. I think tribulation saints, people who trust Christ in the tribulation, they will be looking for the kingdom. Many of them will be killed, and in heaven, think of this for a moment, in heaven they will ask God, how long will our blood go unavenged? And God says, wait, hold, there are many more who must die. If that's not a significant statement of the power of the Antichrist and the level of suffering and persecution here that's coming, I don't know what else you need. But in verse 9 it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, I wonder how long they looked. Can you imagine seeing something like that today? Somebody with that, somebody, well, Jesus Christ, speaking to you, telling you that this is your responsibility, and then literally vanishing up as he ascends. As they looked steadfastly, that word is used in other places in Scripture, and it means to stand firm. So they're probably rooted and amazed as they saw these things. Toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you unto heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He is coming back in the same power and glory. You can take that to the bank. Look in John 14. You can let Acts go. John 14, Jesus again. uh, Just very soon before he goes to the cross, he's speaking with his disciples He has just foretold of Peter's denial. No doubt a very tense moment. He's washed the feet of the disciples as well. He foretells of his betrayal. Then he says this, John 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God. That was a given. Of course they believed in God. Believe also in me. You know what this means? The faith that you have placed in Jesus Christ is the equivalent of faith in God. I think it's a sad thing when many people who say they love God reject that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. You can love God all you want. That's not going to get you to heaven. What's going to get you to heaven? Who are you trusting in? Where is your faith residing? Verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Remember what the angels just said. The one that you just saw go up, he's coming down in like manner. And Jesus already said it to them. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Come again? I will come again. Some of you got that joke. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know. And the way ye know. I don't think they understood all of this at the time that Jesus was saying it, but I think they understood it as they went on and served, especially after his resurrection, where he taught them these things. All the puzzle pieces clicked together for the disciples, and they have shaken the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake The things that he's demonstrated were enough. But now he's giving you his word. 
Which, folks, that's the best thing that we have. Our word. That's why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You're going to do something, go do it. And if you're not planning on doing it, then say you will not do it. It's better than being a liar. People go to Revelation 21, 27, right? Ooh, whosoever maketh the abomination or maketh the lie. You know how you make it an abomination? You start with the lie. There are no things as little lies. They're all bad. So this is the one who we can choose to resist by living in sin. So go back to Hebrews 12, in verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spoke, spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. What he's saying here is, if the people who were in Israel did not escape for their unbelief, uh, don't think that you, as a child of God, will suddenly now escape what has been said from heaven. Verse 26, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. This is significant of speaking about, in Revelation chapter 21, when God is going to speak, and this will be at the great white throne judgment after the thousand year reign here on the earth, and he will speak, and everything here is going to go away. And there will be a new creation. I want you to go there in Revelation chapter 21. Hold your spot here in Hebrews 12. Or, yeah, Hebrews 12 is where we're at. Woo. I'm telling y'all. Fans are doing only so much, you know what I'm saying? We were working on the AC and I had, I had taken my church shirt and laid it in a bunch on the uh, table in there and I'm driving to church and I'm like, where's my shirt at? And I was like, oh, it's crumpled up on the counter back there. So I had to wear a different shirt. But, and I thought, well, this will be nice because it's short sleeve and it'll breathe. Yeah, Florida heat's Florida heat, you know? Revelation chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 here. This is that shaking. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the, uh, heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. This is significant to that glory again. Everybody in this period of time that's not in hell will be in fellowship with God in perfect, complete, not in innocence, in perfection. Even better than the state of the Garden of Eden. And he will dwell, uh, excuse me, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. I heard a take on this in Bible college that kind of, well, it didn't kind of, it just really shook me. That the former things that are passed away, that would include the people that are suffering consciously in hell for all of eternity. We will remember those people no more but they will be going on into eternity. 
This is how serious it is when we say what the gospel message is and what it is not. You better be right. You better make sure that what you're saying is backed up by the Bible. There are so many people that want to attack the simplicity of the gospel to say it's not hard enough, to say it's not theological enough, when all we use is the Bible. Is that not enough? But there are going to be a group of people that will not be remembered anymore. Those are the ones that are in hell. But for us in heaven, no more pain. You may have wondered, why, does, why is heaven like that? You know, where does it say that? It says it right here. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, this is God's voice here, I make all things new. And he spake unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, It is done. What is done? The course of time in history. It's over. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. That will be the shaking that destroys this earth and the former heaven, and they'll be all brand new. I think that's a literal thing. I don't think this will be rebuilt over. I think it'll be a whole brand new thing. What will it look like? I don't know. Better than this. Have you ever been caught by the beauty of nature? Has it ever overwhelmed you? I remember as a kid traveling to Yellowstone and Grand Teton and uh, the Grand Canyon, all that stuff, and just being caught off guard by the sheer simple beauty of this creation. And this is in the fallen state. What's the new heaven and new earth going to look like? Some people are like, oh, there's no more sea. We're not going to enjoy the beach. Well, obviously, God thinks that's better than what we've got here. So bring it. I'd love to see that. But if this is the power that God has to carry out His promises, why would we be so foolish to think we could resist Him? But there certainly are people that think they can resist Him. Let's go now to the book of Acts in chapter 7. The book of Acts, chapter 7. For those of you that know your Bibles, this is where we're going to look at Stephen and his stoning, where he was put to death. But I want you to see the resistance and the lengths that these men went to to silence this voice. Then I'll make a point on that. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears. Ooh. Okay. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. He's talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, rulers in the Jewish faith. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of Jesus Christ, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. So, so far, folks, if you're keeping a tab of what Stephen has called his audience, he's called them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. He's now gone to call them betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition, uh, dis, disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they, his audience, heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They gnashed on him with their teeth. They gnashed on him. 
with their teeth. They were violent. They thought the best way that we can get this man to stop is to destroy him. Absolutely take his breath away from him. Destroy his body. And that's exactly what they did. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly, just as those disciples had looked up and seen Jesus, just as we are commanded to stay unmovable in the faith, so Stephen was in his final physical moments. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That did not help his case, but folks, he was already a lost cause. Because 57 tells us, Then they cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord. They got together in one organized mob of screaming hands over the ears, and they rushed this man, cast him out of the city, because they knew if they were to do anything in the city, they'd be guilty of the very sins that they were trying to put him to death for, and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Dun, Dun, Dun. Who's this? This is our friend who wrote a majority of the New Testament before he believed Saul. Hmm, interesting. That's not my focus, just a little plot twist there. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, uh, voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They killed him. Many people, including the Antichrist, who's going to rule and reign here on this earth for that seven years, they will think, this world system will think, if we can just shut up the Christians, if we can just physically kill them so that they speak no more, we will be free to do anything we want to do. Wrong. They will all give an account. They resist God. Why would we want that same carnal, wicked, disobedient heart in the life of a believer? Do not resist God. If he was faithful to do the things back then, and we trust him for salvation now, and we know that he's going to do what he said in the future, why, through our ongoing sanctification, would we suddenly think it would be okay to disobey and to resist his warnings? That's what people who are foolish do. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Ooh, you thought I was going to the judgment seat of Christ passage. But it is that passage, but I want you to look at the warning here that Paul says. <clears throat> wow. It's hot up here. Look at 16. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Remember the significance of the preparation and the holy demand for the temple. You were unclean and you caused the sacrifice elements to become unclean? Death was what you earned. Here we are now. The, the Lord dwells in us. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. The believer is included in this. And it doesn't mean he's going to destroy physically, or excuse me, spiritually, that you'll lose your salvation and end up in hell. This is talking about the destruction of your body now. And look, it's not for us to look at people with ailments and say, oh, they must be really bad sinners. No, those people know. 
They know why they're going, what they're going through, what, what they are experiencing. And in the cases that they don't, they trust the Lord. Not our job to try and find God's discipline in people's lives. It's our jobs to be right with God. It's a one-on-one thing. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. Can man deceive himself? Yes. That's why we're told not to deceive ourselves. How? How do we deceive ourselves? If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, boy, I think that's about 89% of the comments on the YouTube video recently. Lots of people say they're wise. They call me the fool, they call you the fool, because you simply take God at his word, and they'll throw the church fathers at you, they'll throw the uh, Nicene Creed at you, they'll throw you all these theological books and say, get reading, but they don't even know the simple text of the word of God. It's okay, if anybody thinks themselves to be wise, let him become a fool, for what purpose? That he may gain real wisdom, that's what it says here, that he may be wise. Not wise in the way of the world, but wise in the things and writings of God. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. I liked what Louis said about the PhD piled high and deep. That is so true. It's so true. So true. I saw an ad for Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't have anything against them unless they, have, they don't have the gospel clear. But the guy was... He was a college student, and he said, I, you know, I was really attracted to that I had to write a 20-page paper every week. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing, but if you're doing that instead of being in real practical ministry, instead of leading souls to Christ, who are you helping? What is the benefit of that? That's like a, that's like a, a power lifter eating all of the calories he needs to eat to be a power lifter and then never lifting the weights. He's going to be really fat and really unable but he's doing all the things but he's actually not doing the one thing that matters the work the work don't deceive yourself with the accumulation of knowledge get that knowledge out in the form of reaching somebody with the gospel and discipling people for it is written he taketh the wise in their own craftiness And that's from Job chapter 5 and verse 13, according to the side reference there. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. And what a great way to cap this off. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. Why? Ye are Christ, and Christ is God. I love that. You want to be a part of the elect? Trust Jesus Christ. He is the elect. He is the chosen one of God. And this is so powerful for us. It doesn't matter who led you to Christ, what part of the world you came from, what you're going to go do in the future. You are God's child. But don't deceive yourself with the wisdom of this world. That's resisting the wisdom of God. And then finally, we'll look in James chapter 2. Ooh, James chapter 2. Yeah, this one, often twisted. I mean, it's almost nauseating how twisted this book has become. But in James chapter 2, starting in verse 8, James is going through and he's kind of really letting them have it. 
they, They have a sin of partiality. They know enough to be effective, but they're hiding their partiality. What does it mean to be partial? You treat people with different respect. Listen, God is not a respecter of persons, nor should we be a respecter of persons. Verse 8, if ye fulfill the royal law, which is referred to as the, um, in verse 25, uh, verse 26, yeah, verse 25 of chapter 1, the perfect law of liberty, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, the law of Christ. This is the liberty that we have. Uh, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well, but if ye have respect to persons, you commit sin. Now what's he saying here? You do one thing you're supposed to do, but you disobey the other one. It doesn't cancel itself out. Oh, well, you, you murdered, but you didn't lie to your neighbor. I guess that just cancels out. That's not how that works. But if you have respect to persons, verse 9, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors, your sinners. Verse 10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Verse 11, for he that said... Do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Doesn't matter which one. You do one, you mess the whole thing up. That's where verse 12, com- 12 comes in. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged. That's a very important word there. There is a clear judgment for James' audience. What is the judgment? Where is the only judgment where believers will be judged? We only have the judgment seat of Christ, not the final great white throne judgment. This is what I took a problem with with John Piper publicly in the video that we did. He has said that there's some mysterious third judgment for believers to prove if they were really saved. It's not in the Bible. But... Your faith in Christ alone will not spare you from discipline, chastening in this life, and a future loss of rewards. Just because you say, I've trusted in Christ, that's great. But if that's all you've done, you will suffer loss. And you're a fool to think otherwise. Pardon my pointedness, but but believers need to hear this got a lot of people in the body of Christ who are apathetic to God's instruction. Look what he says. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of what? Moses? Was the law of Moses the law of liberty? No. It was to condemn us and point us to Christ. This is a different law, the law of liberty. That's why he says in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? From what? From that loss at the judgment. Where there will not be mercy on our works. 1 Corinthians 3 says, our works will go through the fire. Love this, by the way. Not the man. The man's works. And Paul even reiterates in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, that man will be saved so as yet by fire. He won't go through the fire, but his works will. There's not going to be the apathetic, lazy, undisciplined believer that stands before Jesus Christ and says, but I trusted in you. And now his works are all moved away from the fire. 
No, they still go through the fire. And there'll be many people because they resist God. They have bitterness in their heart. They are disobedient. They love sin. They despise the teaching of God. There will be many believers that have eternal life, but they will suffer massive loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And that must be significant. Otherwise, God would not have told us to be so obedient. And shame on us. Shame on us when we waste this life for material things, for things that don't matter. We are essentially calling God a liar, and we are making ourselves the God of our life. Straighten up and fly right. That's the instruction here. And that's the whole point of this series. It's not because I didn't have anything to talk about, so we'll go through Hebrews again. It's because I see a lot of people don't understand the warnings in this book. But I see a lot of people, too, that say, oh, well, I'm saved, I'm going, it's, it's all good. You better check that. Do not resist God. We'll close in Hebrews 12. We're in verse 27. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, and those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. How do I serve the Lord, Pastor? How do I get started? You respect God's word. And you do what he says. It is not respectful to simply know but not obey. And we are reminded in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. That fire is the same fire that's going to consume our works. The same fire that will consume the unbeliever forever and ever and ever. And if we are foolish enough to think that we can get away with a poor quality of spiritual life here, we will be consumed. Not by hellfire, but by God's chastening and disciplining hand. And I can't change that for you. I don't want to change that for you. This is what helps me stay in the right frame of mind. I'd be a fool to think I can get anything past my spiritual dad. I could do tons of things to deceive my earthly parents, but I cannot deceive God. So why would I even try? That's the definition of someone who's not that smart. (laughs) You can close your Bibles. And I want you to know how you can be certain that you're going to heaven when you die. This is the greatest news in all the world. I think we should never be silent about the gospel message. This hand represents you and me, everybody here in the entire world. And this wallet will represent our sin. I put this on top of, our, of uh, the hand that represents everyone because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? Perfection. That's what we would have to have in order to get to heaven. And this doesn't mean, Lord, I promise I'll be good from this point going forward. You haven't met the mark before you walked in here because all the sin you did before still counts. And someone has to pay for this sin and the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. God, He loves us so much in this way. He loved us. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But He hates sin. Sin is an offense to Him. It separates us from Him. We can't do any good works of our own deed. That's why I don't have any money in here 
any coins, any credit cards. Doesn't matter how much quantitative easing I might do with my works. None of it is going to be good enough to pay for my sin. Somebody's got to die for this sin. God loved us in this way. This represents His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can see in John 3.16 the plan of salvation and how this sinner can receive the righteousness of God. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that He gave His only begotten Son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The plan of salvation is this. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The moment that you trust in Jesus Christ, you're saved eternally. But what about, is it a sin? Well, yeah. Did Jesus pay for it? Well, yeah. So your salvation's eternally secure. The moment that you believe, you receive the free gift of everlasting life. Now, don't go live like a knucklehead who's back under this. That's the unwise thing to do. Trust the Lord for eternal life, and you will receive it. And then trust Him to give you the strength to carry out His will here, and you will receive that strength. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here this evening and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ for the first time, I would like to pray for you. Would you slip up your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you. It just lets me know that you trusted Christ tonight, and I want to pray for you. Anyone before we close? I kind of expected that, so bear with me for just a moment. I want to be an encouragement to you. The Word of God speaks very strongly about living a lazy spiritual life. But He also says very clearly He will give you the strength that you need to live correctly. I don't want you to stress. I don't want you to be second-guessing and all these different things. Do the things that you know you're supposed to do and do them with joy, knowing that God will reward you for it. You're already accepted because you're in His Son. But please... Do not waste this time. This is the only life you have for Him. And please know that I, as your pastor, I am for you. I bring you to the Lord often. Often I pray for you. And we are in this together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Bring us back here safely for service on Wednesday night. Thank You, Lord, for being patient with us. In Jesus' name, I pray these things.